Hey everyone, I'm here with Derek Black, who is the author of Schoolhouse Burning and a professor at USC Law School. How are you doing in the middle of this ridiculous time? Ridiculous is a kind word for it. Yeah, I'm doing as well as I can, thanks Emma. Yeah, well, good to hear it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book and just the topic of public education in this country, which is constantly under assault. I would say more so under this administration than it has been in a while. Although, you know, when you look, it can be kind of ubiquitous across both parties when we're talking about public education. Um, can you talk about what you see in terms of the state of things and also what your thoughts are? when it comes to the push to return to schools and just in general. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think something has changed in the last decade and you know, you're right. I mean, public education has has had its problems over the last decade um, and, and several decades. But if you really look at the way that the language has changed in the last few years, what we find is a direct attack on the idea of public education itself. So, you know, and and prior administrations and prior times, there may have been differences of opinion about what's you know sort of the most effective policy. Should we have small class size, large class size? But all of that was a debate within a public education system. What we now literally have are people saying that we should do away with the public education itself, that we should move towards a privatized system. And so that's a fundamental change in terms of how we talk about schools. And of course, the current crisis is creating leverage for that. You know. To Secretary of Education DeVos and, and, and President Trump, they've had their design on privatization for quite some time. But what they have done is use this current pandemic as an excuse to further demonize public schools and blame the pandemic on them. Right, So it's their fault that we can't have school, but private schools, they're great, they're ready and willing, that's the narrative. And so they've tried to move more money into the private sector and more students out of the public sector. Yeah, and I think it's it's clear why they're doing this. Obviously, there's a profit motivation, but usually when you're seeing the privatization of schools and the push for it, it tends to be not in the wealthiest areas of the country, not in the whitest areas of the country. Can you talk about how that push nationally is more, uh, I want, was gonna say quarantined, but more uh, sectioned off in the South and in minority areas than it is in wider areas of the country. Yeah, that was one of the most troubling things that I found in doing my research. I mean, you know, when I first began, I was looking at privatization and the challenge to public education at really a national level and hadn't drilled down on the geographic and the racial racial aspects of it. But you know, there's some great reports and studies out there by the Network for Public Education. And what I did was take the data that they had produced and mapped it out in terms of who had the most privatization, who had the least. And when we look at our, our states that have the highest level of white students, there's almost no privatization there. So if we look in the upper Northwest or the Midwest, and, you know, Nebraska, there's almost no privatization there at all. Also, you know, West Virginia, right? Almost entirely white rural West Virginia, none. But when you look at the Southeast, there's this huge, enormous block where there is extremely high levels of privatization. And the same thing in the Southwest as well. So what I sort of telling the book is the idea that this push to privatize is also caught up with the idea that you know government or at least some aspects of government does not want to fund the public education of low income and minority children. 
And I mean, I think that boogie woman for that kind of perspective is really exemplified by Betsy DeVos. She's obviously kind of had her mask off when it comes to her very obvious efforts to privatize education in this country. And that was a huge part of her legacy in Michigan. So can you talk about her effect on public education and what that how that fit into your research? Well, I'll have to say that you know she she kind of caught me off guard. I was talking to to some folks in Michigan recently, and he said, "Well, why is that? We she's behaved this way for a long time." And I said, "Yeah, but normal people don't normally behave this way." You know, the idea that the U.S. Secretary of Education would leverage a pandemic to further her agenda was just startling. I mean, you know, and she'd been around for three years, you think I would have would have not been surprised. But I think even Congress was. I mean, they wrote the CARES Act, assuming that at least for this period of time she would put aside her, her agenda and just do what's right by kids, right? Congress handed out, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for public education to make sure they were safe distance learning, etc. And what does she do? As soon as she gets the money, she starts talking about creating a voucher program with that money. She starts insisting that public schools share enormous amounts of their money with the private schools and passing regulations to that effect. And then starts you know, suggesting to governors that they ought to use their coronavirus funds for vouchers as well. And it, it's really just amazing. It's like when you go to the doctor, you expect the doctor to treat you. You don't expect the doctor to sell you cell phones, for instance. Well, I think when we have a secretary of education, we expect her to take care of public schools, not try to take care of private schools, at least in a pandemic. But but she's proven me wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, the grift is is unbelievable. And I think it, it's a shamelessness that's rampant in her family. Obviously, Eric Prince is one of the most notorious mercenaries in the country. And Betsy DeVos has shown similar shamelessness. Can you talk though about, you're talking about vouchers, can you explain to the viewer what vouchers are when it comes to talking about public school funding, because I think they can sound innocuous, but what it really does is just saps public school systems of resources. Yeah, that's right. I mean, on one level, we all love for someone to pay for something else for us. And on one level, that is the innocuous sounding nature of private school. Well, if I can get government to pay for it, why shouldn't I? Or I'm already paying taxes, well, why shouldn't I get something back? But the way that at least state level vouchers operate and the ones that are floating around out there is here in South Carolina, for instance, the bill has been that whatever amount of money that the state normally gives to a public school for public education, if that student decides that they want to go to private school, they will take the entirety of the plan is to take the entirety of those funds and give them to the private school. So that that doesn't it now. So let's think about it. Let's say that 10 kids leave a high school, for instance, and that means let's say you know $60,000 comes out of the public school budget and goes to private schools. But that public school is gonna still need the exact same number of teachers, have the exact same light bill, have the exact same number of bus routes to run. And so their costs aren't gonna go down, but $60,000 just went out the door. And a lot of schools, we're talking about a lot more than just $60,000. So it is, it is literally robbing the public coffers and sending it to a private institution. And that's the point, right? They do want to destabilize the public system and move children towards a private system. And can you one explain further the incentive structure behind doing so? Why Betsy DeVos and others like her want that to happen? And you know, I'll, I kind of know the answer, but I will also add: I feel like when talking about charter schools 
a lot of people have gotten themselves to believe that well, then this allows the cream to rise to the top. Then the children who are the most talented will benefit from this. And they've kind of internalized that as opposed to saying, "Oh no, these systems that could benefit everybody could allow for more prosperity for all students. And then secondly, why you kind of think education is seen as a bit of a dry topic in this country when it's so integral to how every child uh, you know, becomes who they are and how they affect our society. Yeah, well, in terms of the motivations, I mean, there there is putting DeVos aside just for a moment, but it's sort of the the, the overall ideology there. Um, you know, ultimately, you have the Koch brothers and a lot of other folks like that going back decades that believes that government in the United States is designed, or what it has been designed to do in recent decades, is take money from wealthy people and give it to poor people. Right. And so, you know, at the federal level, the number one target is healthcare, social security, things of that nature. But at the state and local level, the overwhelming amount of money is spent on public schools. So if you think government is extracting money and giving it to poor people at the local level, we're talking about public education. So a lot of this is just about lowering taxes, like reducing governmental responsibility. And as Grover Norquist has said, to shrink government to the size that you that you can drown it in a bathtub. And that's ultimately what they're trying to do. The other part of this though, which you're mentioning is that when kids leave the, so the public system is open to everyone. They don't get to say no to any child, but the private system can pick and choose. And so what we really are seeing in the in the private system, whether it be charters or vouchers, is a sorting of students. That they sort into groups based upon religion, they sort into groups based upon other demographics, socioeconomic status and race, and so we go from a public system that must accept all to a private one that looks much differently than that. And our private schools and our charter schools, for instance, have far, far fewer students with disability, for instance, than our public schools. So they are taking the, what we might say, the cheapest students to educate, the non-disabled, and leaving the most expensive students in the public schools. Same thing with ELL students. So we see this sort of dynamic of the sorting out of students, those that the private system wants to teach, and those that it does not want to teach, and it produces segregation. Right, it's just segregation by uh, by another name. I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, your book. Can you tell people where you they can find it and how they can read it? Yeah, Schoolhouse Burning. It's available, you know, anywhere books are sold. And um, if you want to get sort of up to date reviews and that sort of thing, you can follow me on at Derek W Black. And I'm always sort of talking about what the hot topics of the day are in education, law, and inequality. Thanks so much. Uh, have a great rest of your night. Thank you too. Hey everyone, welcome to the conversation. <laughs> I'm here with Angelica Duenas, who is a candidate for Congress running in California's 29th district. You're running in a jungle primary, I hear. So you don't have to worry about going after a Democratic candidate from the left. And the Democratic Party hopefully won't smear you as someone who wants Trump to secretly win or something like that. That's right, that's right. We already got through the primary. And now we have this opportunity here in the 29th district to have um, uh, a progressive takeover and um, really give the people an option and um, a candidate, a representative that's willing to fight for the people and not the corporation.
Right, and you have an enormously progressive platform, healthcare is a human right, criminal justice reform, a Green New Deal, public education as a right. You talk about progressive foreign policy in your platform. Can you expand upon that? Because it drives me nuts how underserved that topic is, say just on issues of you know Yemen or how we deal with Israel. What are some of your ideas on that front? Yes, I think that one of the things that we have in our platform that should be highlighted is the idea of cutting the cutting military spending by 50%. We're not talking about, you know, um, ending our military or anything drastic like that. What we're talking about is if you take a look at where military spending is going, I mean, 50% of it outright goes to private contractors. Um, less than 25% of military spending actually goes to the military, to the people. It gets spent away on a, a private contract, on purchasing arms, that at the end of it all, they get unused, most of them. And when they do get used, is to cause destruction and or to pass them on to other countries to do the destruction by proxy for us. So when we're talking about foreign policy, we're talking about a foreign policy based on peace and really building communication and commitments throughout the world for peace. And that's throughout the Middle East, that's throughout South America and really throughout the world. We want to really emphasize the that many of the of the of the problems that we're seeing here in the United States is because of um, problems that we have caused in one way or another. Some people see the immigration issue that has been um, plaguing um, uh, uh, some folks as far as because they need to leave their country, leave their home because of of either war, uh, famine, or economic hardship. Um, and now we're seeing actually environmental uh, crisis also as a reason why people are needing to move. They're not able to uh, plant the crops that they once were able to. They're not able to really, you know, they don't have water that they usually have access to because of drought. So these are all of these things that need to be focused on. And instead of really spending our our funding on war, we need to be funding um, and and and. Um, uh, Emphasizing the importance of climate change and really um, communications building and um, partnerships that we need to focus on. We need to focus on life, um, not death. And that is really what we're trying to, to emphasize in our platform top to bottom and locally and um, uh, uh, globally. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, no one gets rich off that kind of thinking. So what are you gonna do? Uh, <laughs> but speaking though of those kinds of topics, you did, uh, I guess uh, in 2017, protest outside Senator Dianne Feinstein's office and in, uh, in order to secure more humane treatment um, of our dreamers. and. She has been central to so many of the military industrial complexes desires her her work on the intelligence committee. Can you talk about why you felt the need to protest in front of her office and how that informs your candidacy and just also the topics you were just discussing? We were there in support of one of a, a dreamer that led a, a, a group of people who um, we were trying to push and this happened throughout the country. So we were one of many groups that were going to their representative's office and asking, demanding 
that they did not vote, did not approve the budget for the year, did not vote to approve the budget to hold back and to, as the Democratic Party, you know, really forced for the Republicans to include a dream act in the year's budget. So we wanted not a DACA, which is a temporary deferment of deportation, but a permanent solution, a path to citizenship. Unfortunately, you know, the Democrats did not did not stand with the Dreamers, and they went ahead and pushed to approve the budget that year. So that was the the action that we took, and unfortunately, we were not even allowed to enter the lobby. We were arrested the second that we sat down in front of the building and whisked away off premises. Fortunately. Um, we were not brought in um, since we, we did have a dreamer with us. We didn't want to affect his status in any sort of way. So we did, you know, listen to uh, the officer's warnings that if we did return, that there would be an actual arrest. And so, fortunately, nobody was arrested. We were just removed from the property. Well, that's good news um, because unfortunately, officers sometimes don't. Give that forewarning, especially when dealing with left-wing protesters as opposed to right-wingers, which obviously we've seen so much throughout this year. So, can you talk about that? What you just referenced about Democratic weakness when it comes to negotiations. Part of what Republicans do is they leverage the marginally greater humanity that Democrats have to get away with absolute atrocities. So Democrats are really unable to be strategic in the kind of things that they're negotiating over in Congress because they will just fold quite quickly. Why do you think that is and what do you bring differently as a stronger progressive voice in this race? I mean, I think what it is is that you know what we've been um, our hunch is really that you know the people in power are not there to represent the people; they're there to represent the the corporations and their overlords. And so, when it comes down to it, the these people who are in power, um, they are you know this is what they've done, this is what they do. And what it is is that we do not have real representation. Um, in, in any sort of level of government, you know, we do not have working class representation, and that's the problem. We have people who have been bought out and who have, you know, have been compromised. So this is what we're seeing. We're seeing compromised representation, and that is why I'm running for for Congress here in the Cali- in California 29th Congressional District. Because much like what we're seeing from both sides um, uh, of the aisle. We're seeing from our representative Tony Cardenas, who has actually been in power here in our in our community for over 23 years at all levels. He had eight years in the state assembly, 10 years in city council, and now eight years in Congress. And throughout his career, he's shown us very, very much the same. His loyalty lies with the corporations. He's taken millions and millions of dollars from mega corporations in his 20 plus years of, of being a, a politician. You know, he's a career politician, and it's time to put an end to that. You know, I believe in term limits. I believe that, you know, representing our community should be a civil service that you do it and you move on. And so this is where we're at. We're seeing that we have people who have been bought out and who are not prepared to represent us. So it's our responsibility as the people to vote these people out and to look around us to for the replacement. Who are we gonna put in power? Because these positions are out. 
I advocate for seeking out positions of power and occupy them. So this is what our, our homework is, this is our role. Right now that we're seeing our ballot books come out and our sample books come out, we need to take a look at who's in these seats and who needs to get voted out. Well, certainly, and lastly, just to touch on your race specifically, you're in a solid blue district. Your opponent has won fairly handily over and over again, and now you're a challenge to that. Have you gotten any pushback from the National Democratic Party or the DCCC or anything like that, even though it's two Democrats in the general election? So they really shouldn't be taking any sides ostensibly and should be happy with whoever wins the seat. Um, well, what I can say is that locally, um, the Democratic Party has not um, listened to us, or even brought us into the discussion or consideration for endorsements or any of the sort. So we're definitely not getting the support. Um, he's gotten endorsed um, by the local and the national Democratic Party. Um, so we're not getting pushback per se. Um, we've been, if anything, ignored for the time being and um, he left out. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of uh, their, their their playbook. They could be going after you and smearing you regularly. I'm I'm happy. This seems like a a better scenario for you than the alternative outcome. But still, look, I mean, we already know where their where their loyalties lie. It's with the candidate that's furthest to the right, unless they go completely over the pale and they start saying anti-choice things or whatever, like Dan Lipinski. But yeah, I I think it's awesome that you've made it to the general and that you're fortunately gonna be able to mount a, mount a challenge here. So wish you the best of luck and where can people find out more about your race? You can find us at angelica4congress.com. That's angelica, the number four, congress.com. Check us out, maybe we can earn your support.